How you boys doing? Hi. Doing all right, man. How about you? Doing okay. Tired, but good. Uh, did you get together with Jan? Yeah, I did. Oh, cool. It's, it's John. It, it is, is John. John. Yeah. John or Jan? John. John. I don't care. I'm calling him Jan anyway. John. John. John Roman. That's just, just too Americanized. Yeah. It doesn't sound foreign enough. I don't like it. Hell of a nice guy. Well, that, yeah, that I can uh, tell just from his John, Facebook stuff. John Jacob Jiggleheimer Roman? Well, here's the thing. is You know, and Andy Leyland did the same damn thing to me. You know, I love these guys. I do. But I'm tired of them coming over here and destroying my perfectly American stereotypes of their culture. And it's got to stop. So Andy came over here and we went to uh, Universal the first time we met. And we went into the Harry Potter area. And he was so taken with it and everything. And I'm like, but you see this all the time. Yeah, this is your country. <laughs> Don't you like, live in Nocturne Alley? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now John Roman comes over here and he didn't have, you know, he didn't have wooden shoes and he wasn't dressed like the little Dutch boy. And it, and, and if you the, know, if the dyke freaking and broke, he wouldn't have even stuck his finger in it, the bastard. <laughs> it just... You know, I'm tired of this already, you know? We set up these stereotypes for a reason so that we can keep our, our culture straight. And then they come over here and they just and they just shoot holes in it and you know, it's just it's gotta stop. You know what? you know, I haven't seen him in person, but in all the time I've known Andy, I don't think I've heard him once say pip pip. <laughs> and what the hell's wrong with him? I've heard him say bloody and bollocks. I'll tell you something though. God, I wish I could remember what it was. It was something that that Bert says. There's something that Bert says in Mary Poppins that I always assumed was just you know, just ridiculous. You know that that you know antiquated and whatever. Even if I can't remember what it is now, and I actually heard a Brit say it the other day, and it cracked me up. That governor. Hey, governor. No, no, it wasn't. It was. Oh God, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to really rack my memory for for what the you know what the expression is, but it really cracked me up. Well, Bob, Bob's your uncle. That's what it was. It oh, was Bob's your uncle. Somebody actually said that. What does that, that mean? What does huh? that mean? I have that no means, idea. It's the same I've, thing as one thing leads to another. Yada yada yada. Bob's your uncle, and there you go. Bob's your uncle. But I didn't realize that they actually like. St- even if they, if it was real, like at one time they said, I, th- I figured that was. No, like, they say it. They say it because I. Yeah, uh, they do. It is. It was really funny when the guy said it. I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> so wouldn't you feel much better if Andy came over here and he was wearing a tuxedo and a and a derby and carrying an umbrella? <laughs> wouldn't it just make you feel better about <laughs> life? Well, wait, that was a saint. I mean, uh, we need to do the Avengers theme. Or, you know, or if he was just all filthy and, and was carrying a, a chimney sweep with him, you know? And, just, and, and constantly dancing. Yeah. <laughs> Everywhere he went, he would just dance there. Or, you know, just wearing all that shit, you know? So he has, like, a drum on his back and, you know, cymbals on his feet and, you know, a horn, you know, and a, and a harmonica and all. Yeah. And his lovely wife, Angela, is dressed as Mary Poppins. <laughs> and, and riding a, a carousel horse, yes. Yeah. Well, you know what? These people have an obligation to us to live up to our expectations. Exactly. That's it. See, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. 
I mean, we live up to there. Yeah, I, you know, for their benefit, I act crass. That is my point. When they hear these shows, what they hear is what they get if they meet me in real life. I've never once met one of these people, except for the ones that thought I was Chris Honeywell somehow, that were were struck by you know there being this huge difference between what they had envisioned in their head and and, and what they're meeting and uh, you know what what you hear is what you get. Yet I meet these people, and, you know, I had long envisioned, you know, Andy living in, you know, a Hogwarts-style castle or in this little, you know, thatched hut, you know, take your pick. And, you know, and that's apparently that's not really the picture. Or, you know, again, with with John Roman, you know, I, I, I pictured, you know, essentially the little Dutch boy from the, what was it, paint or whatever, you know, little paint cans, you know? Mm-hmm thatched hut he's not it's not the middle ages for god's sakes they're not using leeches if you, go, if you go to the uk pavilion at epcot what do they have there that represents the uk you got a thatched hut you've got some like there a thatched hut tudor looking thing and then you've got a castle so i figured i mean it's it's got to be one of these three they got shops they got bars they got fish and chips they got uh, a funny looking phone booth that's red uh and they got doctor who stuff Right. That's England. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, well I must say you were you you were far different, you know, from when I first met you, you were not what I expected. I expected someone much more handsome. Uh, you you can't get your expectations low enough there. Back to the bin. Anyway, do we want to do this? Yeah. Bill's got to get up in like an hour. <laughs> Bill's got to somehow squeeze in six hours of sleep in the next hour. Uh-oh. So, who's bringing us in? Okay, so Hello everybody Uh, Uh, Shut up uh. (laughs) Hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins I'm Paul Spataro and I am joined by my usual cohorts Dr. Bill Robinson In my Chinese laundry Ancient Chinese secret, huh? Mm. And Scott Hermaphrodite Gardner <laughs> I don't think he heard the H. <laughs> <laughs> I had to come up with an H. <laughs> you know, if he wants to let us know that his name is Hercule, he can. But until then, I'm going to keep making stuff up. <laughs> Jaime. Scott Jaime Gardner. I think we should have a guess the middle name. Scott will never tell us when we, if and when we get it right. But we should have like everybody put in their guesses. Maybe, you know what, we should do a Freaky Five episode. <laughs> Top, Top five. five guesses for Scott's middle name. That could be fun. That could be fun. Maybe I'll find one I actually like. <laughs> I'm assuming you're named after somebody in your family. No. No? Your parents pulled no. pulled a name that you hate out of their asses, huh? Uh, as, as I understand it, uh, the middle name comes from a, a doll that my mother had when she was when she was a little girl. 
hideous. I mean, doll might not be the right right word. It was you know a, you know a plaything that she had when she was a was a kid. How old you, mom? Um, I don't know. She got to be pushing seventy. The search is on. No, I mean I don't think it. I think it was like her name she gave it, or, or oh, something. it's like a you know it wasn't like Barbie. You know what I mean? It wasn't like a name brand. I I I don't believe. Hmm. I think it was like the the somehow or other the name that she you know like how how little girls have baby dolls and they'll give the baby dolls names. You know. So you like something like Mr. Higglebottom or something? <laughs> Damn, you figured it out. <laughs> Mr. Snickles. I, I don't know. I, you know Mr. Snickles. <laughs> Something stupid like that. Scott Snickles good. <laughs> oh, God. Let's not turn that into a thing. I just pulled that out of my ass, you know? <laughs> it may stick. I don't know. What's up, Snickles? <laughs> Great. I was at your German restaurant the other day, Schnickel Fritz. <laughs> you better just hope doesn't you forget the, it, because if I remember it, that's sticking. Have some ridiculous yes, name he does. Like yes, he does. He's yeah. like Schnickelheimer or something. I was like, really? Yeah, it was. It was. I read that and I'm like, wait, what? I, I couldn't tell if the, if they were serious about that. But <laughs> my name isn't John Jacob Schnickelheimer Schmidt. <laughs> something. Hey, that's like, my what? name too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mr. Schnickles. Today we Heinrich, are doing Heinrich von Schnickelschnapp. That was his name. No, that's right. Yeah, Heinrich von Schnickelschnapp. That is his name. Heinrich von Schnickelschnapp. Von Schnickelschnapp. So today we are doing our Defenders Score episode. Score. We're recording it a week after, or week and a half after the Defenders went live, and who knows when it's getting posted? We're, but we're we're nothing but timely. <laughs> Timeliness is not us, but we're having, we haven't. We we decided we wanted to cover them anyway, and I guess we'll just start off with uh, what our history is with the defenders. And Scott, I'm going to go to you first because it sounds like from our discussion you like the defenders, but you don't have a lot of familiarity. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I I do not at all. Um, I have more familiarity with the lineup that they're going with. Um, on this series, you know the Netflix series, uh, but uh, you know the the Defenders proper, not so much. The the funny thing is, is I don't remember Defenders being on the rack when I was a kid. Um, I'm almost certain that it was. I just don't remember it being on the rack because even comics that I didn't buy, I'll see covers from time to time. Like, you know, great example right now, I, I just happen to have Mike's Amazing World pulled up here in front of me, and I was researching um, an issue of Power Man and Iron Fist just to see what the publication date was. And I'm looking at cover images here, and I didn't buy that series off the shelf, but I remember a lot of these covers. Whereas when I look through, say, The Defenders... Uh, I'm I'm really struck by the covers, often struck anew by the covers, you know, where I hadn't seen them or you know before, hadn't seen them in a long time, but I don't have any memories of actually ever seeing them on the rack, which is really unusual because I would, you know, that's a lot of times how I would discover, you know, new characters or, or new series that I would collect is just, you know, I'd be I'd be taken with a cover, you know, mm-hmm. and so. I don't, you know, it's just weird to me. I, I can't imagine that 
you know where we bought our comics wouldn't carry the defenders but i i don't know i I guess they didn't because i just don't remember it being around you know so i i never really discovered it and uh you know up until a few years ago i'd only ever had a couple of issues in my collection that you know just kind of i you know i absorbed them through you know that process of just buying collections and all and then uh one day i I think it might have been when we were recording an episode as a matter of fact where i i you know, did a quick tally to see you know, how many issues of this do I actually own and realized I was damn close to having a complete collection. So I've been a little more active uh, of late of trying to actually fill in those holes and maybe one day we'll actually have a complete collection of Defenders because I'm not far from having uh, the entire run at this point. But, you know, even to this day, I've not read a lot of them. I read the first essentials trade you know however whatever issues are in there and then i've read a few spotty issues here and there mostly ones that you guys have brought to the show and that's been about it but you know whatever i've read i've enjoyed so one of these days i just i just got to make the time to actually read the series proper from from start to finish i'm sure i would enjoy it or at least enjoy it up to a point um, it looks like those later issues by who is it, Don Perlin? They look a little rough to me. But the, there's a lot of stuff right there in the middle that uh, that I really like. You know, come to think of it, though, speaking of the middle, um, I take it back just a little bit. There was a run right in the middle of the Defenders um, where Keith Giffen was the artist. Right around, I want to say it was like issue like 50, oh, 50 60, so. something like that. Yeah, that I have read. Come to think of it, because that was at a time when. Uh, when I was on a real Keith Giffen kick, and I actually did seek those issues out and and collect them and read them, and I remember at the time not really understanding what the hell was going on or who the characters were, but I loved the art so much that it kind of carried me through. Plus, the stories were um, were David Anthony Kraft, who's very up and down. You know, I don't hate the guy because I, I know the I have a. a some friends, I, I think Mike Bailey might be one that really doesn't care for him. Um, he's not my favorite by any means, but yeah, I have read some stories of his that I really liked. I just don't remember his Defenders run being one of his his better runs. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But the art during that period is really good because it's very reminiscent to me of uh, Giffen's work uh, when he was working on Legion of Superheroes, and if I if I've got my timeline straight, I think it's just prior to him coming onto Legion of Superheroes. So you know, it's 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 consistent with that style that he had then. Because I used to really like Giffen, but then he he kind of went off the rails and he lost me, and so I'm you know not so much anymore. But his early stuff I really liked, and it's funny looking uh, at this early you know at that Defenders run I was just talking about I'm kind of flipping through one of the issues right now man is he he is so aping Kirby and I don't think I picked that up when I was a kid strangely enough I like his style but now as I look at it I mean it's it's not far removed from Jack Kirby's style which I didn't like during the same era as a kid so I don't know it's really I don't know I almost felt like he blended a little bit of like mostly Kirby with almost a little bit of kind of the way Byrne drew at that time like you kind of Combine them a little bit. I can kind of see that, yeah. That was it's always funny because I thought you were going to say Storenko. I can kind of see that too, like almost like a blending or a melding of uh, of Kirby and Storenko, which they're not so much in the execution, are... but a little bit in the layouts. Yeah, 
which to me, they're, I don't know, maybe this would be sacrilegious to other people, but I, they're, they're another two I didn't ever think were terribly diverse, um, Kirby and Storenko. I always thought their styles were very similar as well. No, Storenko was much more pop art at the time. He was more, more like Andy Warhol, the, the Andy Warhol of comics. Uh, you know, he, he was doing a lot of experimental stuff. And uh, I just, you know, I, I desperately want to like the guy because <laughs> he's he kind of exudes a little bit of cool about him but he just seems so right. dismissive of some people at the cons that it that that bothers me a little bit right so have you read this run i'm talking about though the, yes the, that was yeah. when they they uh they fought the uh what you call scorpio and the zodiac yeah and they had moon knight moon knight yep. was a member for a time yeah yep that's some good yeah, stuff i i, I was when I first started collecting, the first book of the Defenders I picked up was issue 13. And I was on it pretty much for the whole run, at least the first volume. And I, I always enjoyed it. And, you know, my, my biggest thing was I kind of liked the fact that the Hulk was a member. Uh, which, yeah. you know, he, he was their biggest selling point, you know, for, throughout most of the series. As it went on, they tried to get a little bit away from that. You know, they, they went a little bit away from the core of Doctor Strange, the Hulk, Submariner, which is really, to me, the uh, you know the, the foundation of the team. So as they got away from that, I was a little bit less interested in it. But I pretty much stayed with it through the run, and I did have a complete run. For some reason, I no longer do, and I've recently picked up a lot of the issues that I'm missing. The only early issue I'm still missing right now is uh, number 10, which is going to be difficult to get because that's the one with... Uh, the Hulk fighting Thor. I'm sure that's a, you know, that's oh, okay. a, a that's a that's a wool book in most most stores. Uh, yeah. You know, that's not one you're going to find on the cheap. And then after that, though, like for the first volume, I'm just missing issues 139 through 150, and I'm thinking those are like quarter bin fodder. So I should be, you know, it's just a matter of finding a, a quarter bin where they have them, but I, I don't think any of them have any significant value. I remember there being an issue I read when I was a kid that ended. It was something like where the where the Hulk was now stuck as the Hulk for uh, like the next. I, I forget. It had it had a weird ending. You know, a, a good like cliffhanger ending with the Hulk that I always thought was really cool. But now I can't remember what the whole the whole deal was with it now. But I was really struck with the art with that issue too. I'm trying to look up here to see which issue it was. I'm not finding it on a quick glance. But yeah, like I said, I just one of these days I just need to sit down and just do a, a serious, you know, read through of the, of the thing because I'm sure I would enjoy it. I, I think you would. Bill, I'm sorry to leave you on the background here. What, what's your background with the Defenders? Uh, never read it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, where you said that you started at I issue 13, I started um, at the end of the Defenders when they had moved out to um, Angel's place. In I think it's in Colorado. Like, that was their new headquarters. It was him and the Beast and Candy Southern right. and Gargoyle and I Ice think Man I think was on it. Ice Man, yeah, it was basically like a pseudo X Men book. A, yeah, a little bit of X Men. Yeah, so I started there and worked my way backwards, picking up issues. And I, like you, I think I had close to a a good good full full run, except maybe like a lot of issues under issue fifty. But 
I don't know whatever happened to them. I don't know if I sold them. I have no idea what happened to them. So I've slowly been, as I see them in a like a dollar bin or something, I've been picking things up here and there and just pick, getting them again. You know, having fun trying to hunt them down and find them. So. Well, that's but, the thing. From about issue, I would say from about issue thirty or so on up, you can pick these up for a song. Because I've not paid more than a dollar for any issue that I've got of this series, and mm-hmm. I, like I say, I'm probably about a dozen issues away from having the complete series. So mm-hmm. you can have these on the cheap. Yeah, well, I I picked up several issues in the first ten, including issue number one in the last, say, two years or so, and I don't think I paid more than $10. I think I paid $10 for issue number one. Mm. And everything else was, you know, 4 or $5. That's a good score for 10 bucks, though. I think yeah. it's well worth it for 10 bucks. Oh, yeah. Damn, I am not finding that issue I'm looking for. I wish I could remember what it was, because I remember as a kid really being taken with the R. And as you say, I mean, the, you know, to me, the big draw of this was the Hulk. Especially when I was a kid, because I remember, you know, the Hulk, of course, was on TV and everything. And I wasn't, I was kind of both simultaneously drawn to the book and put off with the, by, from the book by the fact that I really didn't know who the hell anybody else in the book was. I didn't really know, and I definitely didn't follow Doctor Strange. And I'm trying to remember, in the issue that I'm trying to remember which issue number it was, I, I want to say his other teammates were Nighthawk, which I still gotta be honest, I still don't really understand Nighthawk. I don't really know what his whole deal is. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's Batman. Yeah, yeah. he, yeah, pr- yeah. Pretty much, but not his parents weren't killed. Pretty much, right? But I don't he, think his he, parents were killed. I, I don't remember ever hearing what happened to his parents. But, did, but didn't he have, like, neurosis and some mental issues and they eventually did that. But yeah. he, he was created as part of the Squadron Sinister Out. and eventually Squadron Supreme. Supreme, yeah. Uh, as the, uh, you know, the doppelganger of Batman, or I guess the doppelganger of Owlman is probably a more apt uh, description. And then eventually in issues 13 and 14, they brought him into the Defenders and turned him around to make him a hero, changed his costume... I always thought his costume was kind of awesome. I mean, in, in real life, like if they tried to make it in a live-action movie, I don't know if that costume would translate. But well, on the comic book page, I loved it. Yeah, but his costume kind of looks like the, the the Blue Falcon from the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Well, that's why I said I don't know if it would translate to live-action. <laughs> hey, BF. <laughs> Dino-mutt. But, uh, you know, just, just to take it back to the score aspect of this... You know, where, as I said, my attraction to this series was the Hulk, Doctor Strange, Submariner. That's not what we're getting from Netflix. We're getting Daredevil, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and Jessica Jones. And realistically, the Defenders is just kind of a uh, a title well, that they're throwing on it. It's not really too much in connection with what we have in these well, comics. And I was in the LCS because they recently just moved, and and I guess there is there there is an actual Defenders book out now with I think Luke Cage and and yeah and those and Jessica characters Jones and Daredevil yeah. and and Iron Fist, but that's the reaction to making the Netflix series. That isn't the you know that was never each each of those people, with kind of the exception of Iron Fist, had their time with the Defenders. 
The issue I'm going to cover has Daredevil and Luke Cage in it. Uh, Iron Fist appeared a little bit as he was in. I know he was in that issue that uh, we covered a while back where everybody became a defender. Uh, oh, yeah. Right. Right, yeah. But but I don't think he was ever really a regular member, and Jessica Jones really didn't exist when this series was out. Right. Right. So, you know, they, they weren't really... None of them were ever core members of this group. Uh, you know, we, we did pick at least two of our three issues have some of those people in them. Uh, the other one is more of a classic Defenders story, even though it's the most recent. So, I'm, you know, I'm the oddball. Go ahead. You can say No, I, I, I like the <laughs> issue you picked, so I'm, I have no problem with it, but it's just not so much related to what we're seeing on TV is my only point. Well, before we get onto the books, did, have either of you seen all of the Defenders yet on Netflix? We're up, to the, issue, we're up to episode six. Okay. I'm right. on episode seven, yeah. Okay. So I, I, would, I would say without spoilers... Because I, I don't, you know, I didn't see it all, and I don't want to spoil. I don't want you guys to spoil for me. And if anybody else hasn't seen it, I don't want to spoil anything for them. Uh, my experience so far is that when they're on the screen together, the series clicks. Yeah. But when they're not, it kind of seems to move very slow. Well, and as a testament to that, I think I had told you in like a message or maybe on another discussion we had, I fell asleep during the first um, episode. Like uh, right towards the end, I, I I I was out because I was just like I, I was bored. I was bored. I was totally bored. Now it picked up, and it got a lot better. Like going at the end of two into three, and then it was going full steam. But prior to that, man, that first that first show was a slog. I mean, tired or no, I was just like, I woke up fifteen minutes into episode two, and I had to go back and I'm like, all right, where did I fall asleep in episode one? What's the last thing I remember? So yeah, it was it was kind of rough, but but it got it got better. Got better. Yeah, I'm not I'm not dead yet. I'm happy. So we will, <laughs> we'll wrap it up in the next couple of days. Yeah, I won't say anything else about the end. This is the end. I heard it has like a like an after scene, like the movies were doing. Is that true? Uh, don't remember. Well. No, no saying if it does he didn't watch it no not after the credits because I watched all the way I mean there's like a like you kind of think it's done and then there's another scene but I don't remember like I think I think on the last episode I purposely watched through and I saw no after credit scene so I say nay I say the nay exactly I say the nay nay I say the nay nay it's my rap. You're good. I'm going through every damn issue of this series looking at the final page, and I still can't find that story that I'm that I have an image in my head, and I want to say it's a classic. Yeah, sure. Maybe it's not in a Hulk comic. Hmm? You sure? Maybe it's not in a Hulk I comic. I, I didn't think so. Mm, maybe it know. is though. Maybe it's in an issue of the Hulk. I kind of remember right. that in a Hulk comic, but with the Defenders, though, it might have been a crossover. I don't know. I am certainly not finding it here. I'm going through every issue, and I'm not finding the the cliffhanger ending that I'm looking for. But I remember it being a cliffhanger where, like, the Hulk was now he was basically he was going to be stuck as the Hulk. He was raging, pissed off. I remember the art being Buscema and 
um, what's his name, Jansen, and being like, "Wow, I really like you know this art team together." And I'm you're not talking about the mindless Hulk when they threw him in a crossroads, are you? No, no, no. Okay. No. no. Oh yeah, that was after they split him with Burn, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know. I'm not finding. Maybe it's maybe it is a different title. I was thinking that was Defenders, but maybe not. I don't know. I'm maybe not finding. Maybe it was just your imagination. Maybe it never really happened. Yeah, it could be. Maybe I dreamed it. I don't know. Could be psychosis. Dream. You dream. You dreamed you were stuck as the Hulk. Maybe that was it. I don't know. I'm just I I'm not finding it one way or the other. Not sure what that was, but okay. Now when Scott Horatio Gardner becomes angry on right, Scott Skittles. What was the name we had? Damn, I forgot the name we had already. No, just just never mind. Snigglebottom. Scott Snigglebottom Gardner becomes angry. It's been recorded. It's been recorded for for posterity. So we might as well get to our books, don't you think? Yeah, I guess. And if we're going in consecutive order, as is the normal way when we do these score episodes, I have the earliest one. But this time I didn't choose the first Defenders, which is what I do a lot of times. I chose issue number 25, which is from July of 1975. Uh, The cover is... Showing Valkyrie on an inverted cross. Your choice, right? (laughs) What's that? The cover had had nothing to do with your choice. Oh, I think this. I'll tell you right off the bat. I think this is an awesome cover. Uh, It's got Valkyrie crucified on an inverted cross. Daredevil is unconscious on the ground. Meanwhile, Luke Cage, the Hulk, Doctor Strange, and Son of Satan are battling the minions of the uh, Serpent, uh, Sons of the Serpent. And as is pretty much normal for issues of the Defenders, the Hulk is the biggest one on the cover. Because I, I think they knew he was their selling point, and they always highlighted him. Cover is clearly drawn by Gil Kane, and when I looked it up, uh, there were a number of anchors on it, including Frank Giacoya, John Romita Sr., and I think there was somebody else, and I don't recall. I apologize for that. Uh, but it's right off the bat, I think it's a really cool cover. Uh, it says, Three stand besides them, but against the Sons of the Serpent are even Daredevil, Power Man, and the Son of Satan enough. The story is called The Serpent Sheds Its Skin. It's written by Steve Gerber, art by Sal Buscema, inked by Jack Abel, lettered by Ray Holloway, colored by Petra Goldberg, and edited by Len Wein. The story opens up with Clea transporting Luke Cage and the Son of Satan uh, to go and rescue uh, their fellow defenders and she's using some sort of a uh, like a crystal ball that's that's they're traveling within that and they come out where the defenders were being held by the Sons of Serpent after being defeated in an earlier issue I believe the issue right before this uh, where they come out Doctor Strange and Nighthawk are being held and they they're wrapped up with these somehow with these serpent metal uh, serpent stone I guess type columns, and uh, Luke Cage breaks Nighthawk out. Son of Satan burns the bonds off of Doctor Strange, who pretty much collapses. Yellow Jacket, who's also with them in this issue, 
had previously shrunk down and escaped, and he was looking for a way of getting them out, and he comes back. So now our team is reunited, and they come to the realization that they are at the bottom of the sea in some sort of a uh, lair of the Sons of the Serpent, and they don't know how to get out of there. Under the sea. (laughs) Yes. The the Son of Satan uh, uses his mystical Satan powers to figure out where a passageway is, he melts a wall, and uh, there's a little bit of concern that when he melts the wall, the sea is going to come roaring in, but he finds a passageway that leaves them out. We cut from there to a city scene where Daredevil is unconscious, Valkyrie is being inverted, crucified, with a uh, fire underneath her, and the Hulk was blinded by a blast from some sort of gun, so he's just swinging wildly at people. Well, could, could you say he was blinded by science blinded by the light oh wrapped Wrecked up, up like, like a, a deuce is it a deuce or what, it no, is mind. a deuce it is not a douche <laughs> despite I, people wanting it to think it's douche <laughs> listen, listen to Greetings from Asbury Park by Bruce Springsteen where the original version of the song is <laughs> not the Manfred Mann version where it's pronounced a little bit more uh, a deuce being, being a race car like a deuce yes. coupe Yes. yes, exactly. See, I have some so, culture. Okay. <laughs> so, Daredevil regains consciousness and pulls away and gets away from the Sons of the Serpent. He's getting ready to rescue Valkyrie, but meanwhile, uh, her husband, Jack Norris, and I guess it's time to just give a little bit of background on that. Barbara Norris was given the spirit of the Valkyrie. Valkyrie. Barbara Norris was kind of insane at the time and was I think she was like a devil worshipper or a worshipper of the unholy trio or something like that and she pretty much had gone mad and she was imbued with the spirit of the Valkyrie so she has no memory of her former life but her husband is very protective of her and wants to try and get back with her because I guess he loved his wife. Uh, so it's, it's just for an int- it creates an interesting subplot that's going on as this storyline is going on. Uh, at this point, the crowd, uh, you know, your, your prototypical comic book 1970s crowd, uh, start to realize what's going on. And while they aren't necessarily advocates for equal rights, they realize the Sons of the Serpent are kind of overdoing it a little bit. And they decide, you know, you're not doing us any favors, and they start attacking the Sons of the Serpent. Uh, to me, it's a little bit reminiscent of what they'll eventually do in the Spider-Man 2 movie, where, where it's like, you know, or, or even in Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man movie, where it's, you know, you attack one of us, you attack all of us, that kind of thing. Uh, so the Serpents uh, are, are taken aback by this, saying, we're trying to protect you, and the people are saying, no, we don't need that kind of protection, thank you. So the Serpents run off to regroup, Hulk's eyesight starts to come back, they take the Valkyrie off the cross, and they go to regroup with the other defenders. We cut back to the group of Luke Cage, Son of Satan, Yellow Jacket, uh, Doctor Strange, and Nighthawk, who are coming through a tunnel from that Serpent's Lair, which leads them right up into an office of Richmond Enterprises, the corporation that Kyle Richmond Nighthawk owns and he realizes that his financial uh, specialist J.C. Pennysworth is the guy who's been backing the Sons of the Serpent all this time with Kyle Richmond's money 
So he's quite upset by that. The uh, defenders regain their weapons, which include uh, Valkyrie's sword, Nighthawk's wings, and Yellowjacket's bio-disruptor, and they get ready to head out after the uh, Sons of the Serpent. We have a little interlude at this point with the infamous Elf with a Gun uh, (laughs) that Steve Gerber plot that he started to develop and never completed and was eventually concluded by somebody else who just had the Elf being hit hit by a truck and killed. So spoilers there, by the way. Uh, so from there we cut to the, uh, I guess it's Pennysworth's house, and I is is uh, I'm guessing that Pennysworth is supposed to be a takeoff on Alfred Pennysworth. Yeah, I was kind of yeah, I was kind of wondering about that. So Nighthawk bursts in and starts to lay a beat down on him, saying, "Why are you doing this?" And then in the shocker moment, he says, to your own people, and we see that Pennysworth is a black man who's been, you know, bankrolling the Sons of the Serpent, which really makes no sense at all. Uh, and, and Richmond's looking for an answer on why he would do that. And Pennysworth says, I spent most of my, time, most of my life trying to escape my own people. Do you think me despicable, sir, for turning on my brothers and my sisters? Before you answer, ask yourself, is every white man your brother? Do you feel kinship with him because your skins are the same color? Of course you don't. Why should you? And why should I? So it's giving us a somewhat psychotic point of view, but it's giving us a, a, a you know, a motivation for him at least, which is kind of cool that they actually, you know, try to explain his perspective no matter how deranged it might be. So from there... Did you ever see the Dave Chappelle? Uh, there's a Dave Chappelle skit where um, Dave Chappelle is is plays an old black man and he's blind. <laughs> he's also the head of like a chapter of the KKK, <laughs> and he's married and he has a white wife, and in all the meetings, you know, he always has the robe on, and he's you know he's in there going white power, white power. <laughs> So he has no idea that he's he black. He has no idea that he's black. So, uh, so they unmask him at one of the meetings, and all the like, some of the some of the members they they like lose their mind because he's black and he's you know. And then when they tell him he's black, he's like, oh my god, <laughs> he now he hates himself. He divorces his wife. It, it's I mean that just made me think of this. And I leave it to me to find humor in this, but uh, it's a funny skit on Dave Chappelle if you haven't seen it. Send all hate mail to Dr. Bill. (laughs) So we go back to the uh, sanctum sanctorum of Dr. Strange, where all of the defenders except for Nighthawk have gathered. Uh, Jack Norris is trying to uh, comfort Valkyrie, who, uh, you know, is once again kind of spurning him. She's saying, I appreciate all you've done, Mr. Norris, but please remove your hand from me. Uh, Which, uh, you know, if you're married to somebody, that's, that's pretty harsh. Well, maybe she's thinking maybe you should be like your brother Chuck. Yeah, Texas Ranger, man. So uh, Hulk is saying, but where is Birdnose? And then Nighthawk comes in with uh, Pennysworth. Luke Cage starts to give him a beat down, and Nighthawk actually talks him down. Nighthawk and Valkyrie talk him down and stop him. He gives them the location of the Sons of the Serpent's lair, 
which uh, is cleverly the first building they ever attacked, so that kind of took it out of scrutiny. And they burst in, and then there's a two-page splash with all of the defenders just basically putting the beat down on the Sons of the Serpent. And they make quick work of them, and Nighthawk, you know, has that moment of uh, introspection where he says, you know, it's his fault that he let this happen. You know, he, he was too busy doing his own stuff to watch where his money was going, and he flies off. And uh, Doctor Strange says, you know, leave him alone, give him some time to himself. And uh, that's where we end this story. And I remember this story at the time being something I loved reading. It's, uh, I think it's, it's either three or four issues long, the, the full story. Uh, it's, it's one of Steve Gerber's less trippy stories. It's pretty grounded in, in its, uh, you know, in the storytelling. But I think it's, you know, for the time, it was, it was pretty effective. When they brought the Sons of the Serpent in, in this story or in the Avengers when they had it, uh, you know, I think they were, they were doing some, you know, fair social commentary on the, the state of the nation at the time. And I thought in this one, like I said, that scene where the people kind of, you know, support the, uh, or, or fight against the Sons of the Serpent saying, hey, you know, we're not social activists, but we don't want this either. Uh, you know, I think that kind of gave you the temperature of what was going on in the country for the most part. Uh, you know, people could have different feelings about that, and I don't really want to get into too much of the black and white societal uh, relationships. But I think, you know, as a general rule, I think, you know, people want to do the right thing. And I think the story kind of gives it that perspective, except for, you know, the, the outliers. And I think that's what this is presented as. So I, I really enjoyed reading this at the time. I still enjoy it. And, uh, you know, there is a little bit more of a uh, timeliness to it now with some things that have gone on in our country. But I'll leave that to everybody to, you know, explore on their own. What do you guys think of this one? I think every time I hear the word Nighthawk, I think of the movie Nighthawks with Sylvester Stallone, Billy Dee Williams, and Rutger Hauer. And Persis Kambata. <laughs> <laughs> Wolfgar! Oh, sorry. I liked that movie. Oh, What's I'm, her name, too? I'm not making fun uh, of it. I uh, the, like the Bionic too. Woman was Oh, yeah, that. that's right. She was... Uh, Wasn't she Stallone's, Stallone's girlfriend? wife or girlfriend, yeah. And Wolfgar was like an international terrorist who was... Uh, Rutger Hauer? Yeah. That was... Yeah. Yep. Sorry, but this is not a Nighthawks podcast. I tell you, though, every time I, I hear about Nighthawks, I, I'm always taken back to the first time... Actually, I think maybe the only time... I ever saw that movie. I remember we, for some bizarre reason, it was me and my and my folks, and we were visiting my mother's sister, who at that time was a was a very devout, born again Christian, and for some reason they ended up watching Nighthawks together <laughs> in the family room, and I you know I was. I don't know how old I was. When when did that movie come out? In the eighties? Well, that was in the eighties because uh, that was right in, around eighty. Yeah, that was so in I heavy, was... heavy rotation on HBO is where I saw it. Yeah, so I was you know probably early teens, and I remember there's the part where his partner got cut or shot or something, and it was Stallone, and he was he was cradling his part. Wasn't it Billy D. Williams? Yeah, yeah. He's got he's like a big slice his, on him. His partner. 
and he's and he's sitting there and he's going, "You mother effers!" And he kept screaming this word over and over again. And my dad sits there, and it was the most hypocritical thing I'd ever heard in the world. And he goes, "No, why do they have to do that in movies? Why couldn't he just say?" And he said some other word. I forget what it was. There's some something completely non-offensive. And I remember thinking to myself a, a thought that was very similar to like, you know, that movie, A, a Christmas Story. Now I must have heard that word ten times a day from my man. <laughs> and I remember thinking something very much along those same lines, like you that all the time. What are you talking about? You know, yeah, just, he was he was trying to suck up to your aunt. He was. He definitely was. But <laughs> anyway, um. I, I can't really offer much of an opinion on this, only because I didn't uh, didn't have a chance to read it before we sat down to record. Um, so I'm going, you know, just strictly based off of your synopsis, um, my prior history with, um, you know, such as it is with Defenders and, and with these characters. But I tell you, I'm definitely intrigued. I love the art. Um, it's it's not as good as I have seen. Uh, on this title, or even well, it's not as good as when he's inked by Klaus Janssen. I think it's as good of a penciling job. I think if Klaus Janssen had inked it, it would be up a level. And and you know, don't get me wrong, I like Jack Abel, but as soon as I opened this and saw that it was Buscema on the pencils, I was excited. But then when I saw it wasn't, as you say, Janssen on the inks, I was disappointed. And and yes, you're you know, you're absolutely right. You flip through it. And I'll agree. I think the pencils are just as strong. It's just somehow, and it's not that Abel's bad at all because I like Jack Abel, but uh, but it's just it's not bringing that same thing that uh, that uh, Jansen brought to it. But that said, I, I like it because in so many ways, I look at this, and this is Marvel Comics to me, especially of this era. So I, I really like that. So it it looks really good, and I love the mix of characters. You know, I've said it a million times. I'm I'm a sucker for team of freaks, and this is a real team of freaks here. I mean, you've got such a wild mishmash of characters. You know, from you know from your sort of semi regular defenders who are already the non team, and then you throw in you know, Daredevil and Power Man and Son of Satan and Yellow Jacket. It's like, damn, this is one wacky ass team. I love stuff like this. So yeah, I, I'm I'm anxious to read this. I really have to. Uh, I, I'm gonna make some space on my my iPad and start reading my way through Defenders. I keep putting it off, and I, I just need to do it. I need to I need to do a complete read through of this because I'm sure I will love it. Yeah, I think you know you you might lose some of your enthusiasm when they start getting into the gargoyle and characters like that. Right, uh, and that's that stuff isn't bad. But again, like I said earlier, for me, it, it loses a little some little steam because it's not the core team anymore. Mm-hmm. Right, but, uh, but I think you you'll enjoy it overall, and you certainly will enjoy it as long as they keep the core team together. I will say one thing for this, and it's not so much a criticism of this individual issue, but one thing that has long bugged me about the Defenders is how the Hulk is always the Hulk. You know? It just seems like you very seldom see him ever change back. and that only, Even when he's calm. Yeah, and that's the thing that bugs me, is that yes, much of the issues he does spend pissed off and fighting alongside his teammates but there are a lot of downtimes in these issues too where it's just kind of 
you know, Hulk standing around being dumb and maybe a, uh, offering up the occasional funny line like, we're bird nose, you know? But he's calm right there, so why the hell isn't he changing back to Bruce Banner? And that, that but, always used to bug me. But, 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 Scott, don't you know? It's because he's always angry. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you think, Bill? Uh... I don't think I. I think I don't think I. I don't think I had this in my collection because well one it's below issue fifty and I don't think I had a lot below that so. But I remember Son of Satan. I remember him in in later issues because this is where I got my introduction to him. Well, I mean not this issue, but through the Defenders, is you know. Why did they never do Son of Satan versus Son of Santa? They're just they're just leaving money on the table right there. Or Son of Sam. Is it Son of Sam versus Son of Satan versus Son of Santa? There you go. Yeah, the Valkyrie thing always confused me, too, because they even, as we're going to see in my book when we get to it, there's even some, like, they're still messing around with her. And, um, uh, you know what I really like is that two page spread with the fight. Fight, 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 fight. Yeah. I mean, everybody's except. I think the Hulk killed that one guy. You see him, the guy that dis that half his torso disappears into that piece of machinery. How? <laughs> and were they? I guess the sons of serpents have sticks. They're fighting with wood sticks. Not real smart. Pointed I mean, sticks. Well, that's what. The, well, look. There's like a couple clubs around there. It's like, yes, I'm gonna beat you with my big pointy stick <laughs> but, you know um, I bananas think, and pointed sticks bananas and pointed sticks <laughs> he came out we come out with with the banana <laughs> blam oh sorry <laughs> he was attacking me with a banana <laughs> <laughs> so page 11 uh, I guess all those people are like Archie Bunker before Archie Bunker was a thing. The citizens that are like, well, you know, I don't really like uh, these guys. Uh, you know, I mean, I got no love for the the blacks. But yeah, yeah. Right. What is don't Charlie part- Chan doing there? <laughs> I don't. So, so the elf kills um, John Denver? <laughs> Take me home. I, I would love to know where Steve Gerber planned to go with that story. You know what's weird is while well earlier when you, you guys were talking in your in depth discussion, I was looking through some of the uh, like the issues in the hundreds, and there was something in there about like there was another issue with an elf over there in, in that. Yeah, but it I was like he, like he was in a different outfit. Back, yeah. Somebody brought him back. I remember reading about this in like Back Issue magazine or something. Now I'll be damned if I can remember what the whole deal was. But some, I think somebody did bring him back and try to salvage that or something. But I, yeah, I don't it's, know where it ever it's went. an Avengers one twenty three, and there's an elf right on the front page of the first page. Uh, I don't know. It says who is this guy that gets that gets shot anyway? Who is he? Is he somebody important? It's no, John Denver. Average citizen. It's John Denver. Tom Pritchett. Oh, he is singing a John Denver song, That's too. That's what I said. He's John. Yeah, and his, and his wife just getting all, 
all into it, and then, uh, you know, her husband. Now, does the elf kill both of them, or just one of them? <laughs> like, does he want to make sure there's no witnesses to the murder? Is this like Elf on a Shelf? <laughs> Except it's Elf with a gun? Elf in a Shell. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, it's, uh, I like it. Mr. Pennyworth is a snappy dresser too. Well, that's uh, you know, that's how I dress when I'm on the road. <laughs> that's exactly what I wear. I have the little, uh, I have, I I have the jacket, I have, I have the comfy pants, I have the little neck, uh, you know, like ascot thing, like Fred from um, from Scooby Doo. See, he stole my look. Ooh, Luke Cage calls him an Oreo. You can't say that. <laughs> How does he know he's an Oreo? I don't know. Because, yeah, yeah, he's black on the outside, white on the inside. You can't say that. Oh, okay. That's That was what well, the... I that's you, what it meant. Oh, I, well, I know. Was, I know what it means. I, I was thinking maybe he was of mixed uh, parentage, but that would actually make him a mulatto, right? I think. You know, maybe we should just stop this discussion right now. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> Is it, maybe there's some Italian stereotypes we can talk about to, just just to give like, people like, time. Like Mario and Luigi? <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's me, Mario. I just wish once in all these shots of the Son of Satan's trident there was a big sausage on the end of it, though. <laughs> I'm just not touching that. <laughs> <laughs> stay anyway... Away. I mean, I, he would be good at roasting weenies, and he, he could roast weenies, s'mores, and marshmallows at the same time with that. <laughs> Get the trifecta going on. Get it? Trifecta. Tried it. Uh, uh, uh. Whatever happened to him, anyway? Who, the son of Satan? Yeah. He's he's still around. They, you know, they, they made his character much darker. I think they gave him uh-huh. a coat. They didn't have all these gods. Yeah, yeah, he went into the jacket phase for a while there, didn't he? Yeah, the the Hellstrom book. Yeah, yeah. I think I, th- I think they tried to make him more like uh, Constantine. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, di- I didn't really follow him then. I, you know, I, I followed him when he had his own run in Marvel Spotlight, and he had a series of about. Excuse me, he had a series of about maybe five issues or so. I think he had and then a uh, defenders. I think he had a uh, Marvel Max miniseries at one point too. I think. Yeah, I think it was called Hellstorm. Yeah. Yep. Well, we grading? Yeah. Is this getting uh, late? I guess so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we still got two more books to go. So, uh I think uh the cover is... I think his cover is really solid. I think it's actually kind of iconic. I'm going to give this cover an A. The interior art, I think the pencils, as I said, are really solid. I think the layouts are solid. The storytelling is good. The inking is not bad in any way. It's just kind of okay. You know, it, it doesn't elevate the artwork, which is what we've seen Klaus Janssen did with Sal Buscema on the earlier issues of The Defenders. So, 
while I think the art is really good, I don't think it quite reaches that level. I'm going to say a B on the art. The story is solid. It's, you know, social commentary. It's not really, uh, it doesn't really disguise it in any way. Uh, you know, I'm going to say B plus, and I'm going to say an A on the story. I, I just, this one stood out to me as being a really good one. So I'm going to give the overall, I'm going to give the story, over, the book overall an A. Cool. Um, cover, uh, hmm. I don't know if it's really A. Surprised you gave it an A with the big white background behind them, Paul. Well, it's not a stark white background. There's, you know, there's buildings, there's stuff going on, there's the broken sidewalk. It's not just white. No, okay, all right. Shot into the sun. (laughs) Um, uh, did Doctor Strange trip out of a portal? Whoa! (laughs) Um, I'm going to give the cover, uh, I'll give it a B plus, A minus. Uh, the interior art, mm, yeah, it's it's pretty solid. I mean, I know the next book we get to, I'm gonna, I got a few things to point out, but but I read that one first tonight, your book, Scott, and then I read this, and I like this art a little better than any other one. But um, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right back at you. Um, I'm gonna give the art a B plus. And the story, you know, for 1975, it's kind of put some things right in people's faces and, you know, rubs their nose in it and and is even timely today. You know, it's a story that could be read now. Well, we did read it now, but you know what I mean. So uh, I'm going to give the story a B plus A minus as well. So B plus A minus book. Cool. Um... I don't know how this keeps happening that we keep getting... I, I, I really am a fan of Gil Kane, but we keep getting these Gil Kane covers that I don't like. Um, I have to be honest, I don't like this cover. I think it's way too busy. Um, I think a couple of the characters are frankly off-model, and the faces, everybody's making this this weird face. Like, they've all just sniffed a fart or something. Everybody's like got face, and it just... I don't know. They're I, fighting. I, it's fight face. Yeah, I don't know, but I mean, Hulk has almost like a gorilla face or something. I don't know. I just... I don't like it. I really don't. Um, I'm gonna go... I mean, it's it's not abysmal, but it's just not... I'm not crazy about it. I'm gonna go a C- minus on it. I really... I'm not all that crazy about it. I think it's too busy. It's I don't know. There's just a lot wrong with it. Um, the interior art, uh, I'll agree with you. I, I really like um, Sal Buscema's work on this, uh, but Jack Abel unfortunately just isn't doing him any favors. So I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go a C plus on the art. Um, no, actually, I'll go a B minus because it, it's it's really it's not bad. It's just it, he just needs a better inker on it. So I'll go B minus on that. Um, Story, frankly, I mean, like I said, I didn't read it. I'm going strictly off the synopsis and having flipped through the book and everything, but it, it looks very intriguing. Uh, I'm very interested to read it, and, and it's kind of sucking me in. So, um, on on that level, I think I would also, you know, just for the fact that I, I didn't honestly read it, and so I don't want to, you know, be I don't want to be overly praising and 
or overly critical, I'm going to also go a B minus uh, on the story. So overall, uh, I'll, I'll say B minus book. Okay. So that'll be it for Defenders number 25. And since we're running long, we should move right away into our second book. That'll be yours, Scott. All right. So my book is Marvel Team-Up Annual number four. Now, this is not a Defenders book. However, I'm hoping it will become apparent uh, in short order exactly why I chose this particular book. Uh, this book is dated uh, 1991. I I did look it up, and now I've forgotten already when exactly it did come out. Um, I'm sorry, did I say 91? Not 91, 81, rather. Uh, tell you what, give me a quick second, and I will do this proper here. I will actually give you when it came out, according to Mike's Amazing World, because I did look this up before, but then I just kind of lost it. Uh, so, it is... Well, that's weird. Inside it says 1981. This says cover dated 1982. Oh, wait. I'm looking at number five again. Hang on. Oh, my Lord. Get it together. Get it together. You know, right now you're Dr. Bill. And yep, I am. I'm totally. Here we go. Yep. Cover dated just simply 1981. It was released June 23rd, 1981. Features a cover by none other than Frank Miller. Uh, inked by Joseph Rubenstein, and uh, I kind of dig the cover. We'll go. We'll get back into that a little bit later. But what you have on the cover here, and uh, this is why I chose this particular issue. You have in the background. You have the Purple Man, large and in charge. He's got a big sinister face. He's like he's going, <laughs> and he's holding his uh, his clenched hands out, and he's grasping at all the heroes that are on the cover. And on the cover, we have Spider Man. And Moon Knight, Iron Fist, Power Man, and Daredevil. Uh, this uh, on the cover it says Pawns of the Purple Man. So you know, minus Moon Knight, who is being you know, I'm hearing, hearing a lot of rumors that he may be joining the uh, Netflix Marvel Universe. I don't know if there's really any truth to that, but that's what I keep hearing. But minus uh, Moon Knight and minus Spider-Man here, you have core characters from the Netflix Marvel Universe. You know, you've got obviously, you know, Power Man, Iron Fist, and Daredevil and then also, you know, the villain of the Jessica Jones series with the Purple Man. So I thought this was a great book to uh, pick for this one. Plus, I have a very personal connection to this book because this was my first introduction, my first real introduction to three of the characters, or actually four of the characters here, uh, all four of the guest stars. Um, this was my first exposure to Power Man and Iron Fist. I'm pretty sure this was the first Daredevil story I ever read. Now, I knew who he was. I'd seen him around. Chris Honeywell was really into uh, Daredevil when we were kids, and this was right around the time that Frank Miller was you know, doing all his stuff with Daredevil, but I didn't read it. I, I was never taken with Daredevil. Um, so I'm pretty sure this was the first Daredevil story I ever actually read. And then Moon Knight. I'm pretty sure that this was my first exposure to Moon Knight as well. So here they all are in the same uh, story. And also, of course, the, my first exposure to the Purple Man, uh, who I always thought was really cool. Now, it's weird because, you know, now, thanks to, you know, mm -hmm. the Jessica Jones series and everything, the Purple Man has become something of a, of a serious bad guy. And it, it can even be argued that goes back to... Uh, the Alias series, you know that that you know that's where that story originates is from the Jessica Jones Alias series. 
Um, but it, at one point or another, the Purple Man had become kind of a joke villain. Um, but it was weird for me because I never saw him that way because this was my introduction to him, where in this story, he's something of a serious threat. And I always thought that was really cool. Anyway, uh, the story is written by, of all people, Frank Miller. Um, and it's kind of an odd one because as we're going to see, as we go through this story, it's not your typical Frank Miller story, at least not what I think of as a typical Frank Miller story. Uh, the artists on this, on the interior, you've got Herb Trimpey and Mark, uh, Mike Esposito, not exactly the dream team, but I kind of like what they, uh, what they pull off here. George Russos is the colorist. You've got Diana Albers as the letter. Tim DeFalco was the editor and, um, Jim Shooter as editor-in-chief. Did I see Diana Elber's editor? I meant to say letterer, if I said editor. Anyway, this title of the story is Power Play. So the story starts off, Spider-Man's been swinging around all night. He's trying to find pictures to, or, you know, events to take pictures of for, you know, to sell to the Daily Bugle to, uh, you know, to make his bread and butter money. And the best he's manages to find so far is this, uh, you know, this fender bender where... Uh, these people, this guy has run into this uh, this purple car, and you know it's just your basic road accident. He's taking pictures of it when he realizes that two big, you know, essentially thugs emerge from the one car, and they're going to beat the crap out of the guy in the in the purple car. The guy in the purple car basically tells them to take their hands off of him, and then he orders them to beat each other into our unconsciousness. Spider-Man swoops down, he grabs a hold of the purple guy, spins him around, and he literally is a purple guy. Not only is he dressed all in purple, but his skin is actually purple colored as well. The purple man says to Spider-Man basically the same thing, unhand me, and then he tells him, uh, "Shouldn't uh, why don't you climb a lamppost or something? So Spider-Man climbs up on a lamppost and says, now what do I do? And the purple man orders him to recite some Shakespeare. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. Spider-Man, he, sa he says this couple of things. He says, to be or not to be. Um, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore out there, Romeo. And then he says, look, I don't know any Shakespeare. <laughs> That's all he knows. I thought that was pretty funny. So the purple man then orders him. He says, well, what do you know? And Spider-Man says, well, how about Elvis Costello? So the purple man orders him to sing Elvis Costello. So you've got Spider-Man up on this lamppost singing Elvis Costello songs while essentially the uh, Purple Man makes off where he discovers that the car that had hit him was actually full of narcotics. So he makes off with the narcotics, orders the thugs that are still fighting each other and Spider-Man, who's still up on the lamppost singing Elvis Costello, to forget the whole thing that he was even there. So then we cut to the kingpin who uh, has one of his lackeys coming in to tell him about uh, the loss of this heroin shipment and that it's going to cost him $6 million. He orders uh, one of his lackeys to find the owner of the purple Rolls Royce, find him and bring him to me, meaning the kingpin. We then cut to the thugs who are now in police headquarters and the sergeant or whoever this guy is doesn't believe them that they don't remember why they were fighting, what happened or anything. Daredevil shows up 
And it's one of the more honestly ridiculous panels in the book where all of a sudden Daredevil out of nowhere just is climbing in the window and he says, those men are telling the truth. It's, it's just, it's kind of awkwardly paced here. But essentially, and we don't really know how or why, but for whatever reason, Daredevil shows up and has the answer, it had to be the Purple Man. So it's a bit of a leap. It's almost like a DC story in, you know, in that particular aspect where you know you just have this sudden leap in, in both the logic and the narrative. But anyway, he's figured out that it is the Purple Man. So they run a trace on the registration of the roles. They find the location of where the Purple Man is. And when the sergeant turns around to talk to Daredevil some more, Daredevil has, is gone. So Daredevil swings throughout the city and he's on making his way to the location of the Purple Man. We cut to Peter Parker's apartment where later that night he's watching the news with his Aunt May and when it gets to the news story about the car accident and the $6 million worth of heroin, it sets off Spidey's spider sense and he can't figure out at first why is the news setting off his spider sense? <laughs> Eventually, he comes to piece together, because of the pictures he had taken earlier, that he he had had this encounter with the Purple Man and had been made to forget. So it all kind of comes back to him. So he begins to swing about the city in the hopes that his spider sense will guide him to the Purple Man. We then cut to... Um, some other scenes with the Purple Man where eventually he does uh, meet up with... Uh, the whatever you want to call him lackey flunky assassin whatever that uh the kingpin had set upon him and at first it the guy drops down on the purple man as he's riding a carriage through central park and says don't move stay precisely where you are or i will make you dead and the purple man actually orders him to kill himself but then he changes his mind because he's intrigued why did this guy go through all the trouble to try to find him we then well, maybe he's just wondering why Santa Claus is trying to kill him. <laughs> right, he does look like Santa. He looks like a skinny Santa. He actually looks like like Santa mashed up with uh, with Funky Flash Man or something like <laughs> that. It's kind of funny. So then we cut to the Plaza Hotel um, and the suite where the Purple Man was supposed to be staying. And Spider-Man swings in, smashes through the window, causing all this damage for really no good reason. He could have just used the door. And he finds police officers standing on their head. They'd been ordered to do so by the Purple Man. And Daredevil just happens to show up at exactly the same time. Daredevil splashes the cops with cold water to snap them out of the Purple Man's uh, spell or whatever it is that he puts on these people. So eventually, Spider-Man and Daredevil working together track down the Purple Man. Spider-Man charges in despite daredevil's warning you know not to approach him he charges right in tries to take on the purple man himself and the purple man just orders him to go take a flying leap so spider-man runs to the top of a building and flings himself off essentially to his death daredevil swings in and uh and catches him and saves him essentially so now spider-man's starting to get a sense of what exactly that you know they're up against here we cut to the kingpin and the purple man has been brought before him and it turns out that the kingpin 
And they don't really explain this very well. It, it's kind of left to, to you to figure out what's going on here. But the way I took it was that this kind of reminded me of that scene in Return of the Jedi where uh, where Jabba essentially tells Luke Skywalker, you know, don't bother trying to use the Jedi mind trick on me. It won't work on me. It's kind of the same sort of scenario here where the Purple Man orders the Kingpin to shoot himself with his... He's got this special... King, he says it's called my... Obliterator uh, cane, it's just yeah, just ridiculous. But it's essentially it's a cane that shoots a shoots a ray beam out, and he orders the kingpin to turn it on himself and blow his brains out. And the kingpin does turn it on himself, but then he doesn't do it, and he says, "No, I give the orders now." And and so it's very much that he's able to resist uh, the purple man's power. So now he's basically telling the purple man that uh, that you work for me, and he's going to use him as part of a plan to take out all these other heroes that have long stood in his way and interfered with his plans. We cut to Daredevil and Iron Fist, who end up getting involved in this entire thing as well. We also have a little interlude with Moon Knight, where we essentially learn that despite doing something that looks like you know he's he's helping somebody out it turns out he's been set up and he's been brought into this whole thing so all these things are set up and all these things are put in motion essentially to bring all of these players together at the same venue which is a charity event that J. Jonah Jameson is putting on where they're being told they're being fed information that something bad is going to happen an assassination I believe they all get there, and of course, they're all in their civilian identities. There's all these civilians there, and amongst the people that are in the crowd are Matt Murdock and Peter Parker, Luke Cage, and uh, Danny Rand, and one of uh, Moon Knight's identities. I think this is a Stephen Grant identity. So they're all there in their civilian identities when the Purple Man emerges. And the Purple Man is talking basically directly to Matt Murdock. And something I didn't know, but is laid out here in the story, is that you, you're privy to Daredevil's thoughts. And Daredevil says he knows I'm Daredevil and he's going to tell them, meaning the assembled crowd. So he acts fast. He causes a, a diversion. And when all the people run screaming from the theater the heroes in the crowd all switch into their heroic identities and leap into action. And what's really cool here is that for a lot of these guys, it's the first time that they're meeting each other. So when Moon Knight storms into action, Daredevil actually thinks that he's attacking Spider-Man, and so he tackles him. And I wish there had been just a little bit more of that. That only happens for just a couple of panels before Spider-Man drops down into the midst of these uh, uh, other four heroes that are all charging each other and says, whoa, time out, we're all on the same side. At that point, it becomes a true team-up. So the Purple Man orders the crowd to kill the heroes, kill the heroes. So basically the Purple Man's power is that anything he says, people have to obey it. Now, I had always thought... And maybe this was retconned later, something I read in uh, Ohatmu or something, I'm not sure. But I always thought that the Purple Man's power worked through pheromones. Apparently not, because the fact that he's being broadcast on live TV, 
means that when Luke Cage smashes out the wall so that the heroes can all escape from the people inside the theater that are coming to kill them, when they go outside, all these other people that had seen the TV broadcast are now outside also wanting to kill our heroes. So I don't know how you can transmit pheromones via television. So there must be some other explanation here. But anyway, the heroes all go outside with the exception of Moon Knight and Daredevil. And Moon Knight actually uh, ends up knocking out the Kingpin's assassin and stealing these special earplugs that he had that uh, helped him to not be susceptible to the Purple Man's power. Daredevil actually confronts the Purple Man and the Purple Man orders him to strangle himself while Daredevil's laying on the ground choking himself to death Moon Knight sneaks up on him and knocks the bejesus out of him Daredevil comes to he he stops strangling himself and then he's all concerned that Moon Knight has overheard the purple man call him Murdoch so now he feels that his secret identity is out Moon Knight then reveals that uh, hang on a second I can't hear a word you're saying takes out the earplugs and shows them to Daredevil and then Daredevil's relieved to know that he actually didn't hear anything of the conversation supposedly anyway that he and the purple man were having and they shake shake hands so I like this that you know we're, we're privy to the first real meeting of these uh, two particular heroes outside Spider-Man Power Man and Iron Fist are on the run from the crowd uh, this massive throng of people that are chasing them intent on killing them and eventually, um, through the use of Spider-Man's web shooters and uh, and everything else, uh, through Luke Cage's you know super strength and Iron Fist's Iron Fist, they shatter a water tower, dousing all these people with cold water and snapping them out of uh, the Purple Man's power. Spider-Man has a really good confrontation with J. Jonah Jameson that I really liked. Um, they, the police end up taking the purple man uh, who's now wearing a gag so he can't use his power into custody and at the very end of the book um, the kingpin's lackey comes back in to tell him again that essentially well we blew it you know the heroes lived through the thing and the purple man's been apprehended and the kingpin basically swears his uh, vengeance that one day he's going to win against these heroes and that's pretty much the end of the book it's a very simple story or maybe it just feels that way because the art is very simplistic but it's just when you consider what was going on especially in daredevil at this time and especially with the very same writer frank miller doing the the amazing stuff that he was doing on it at the time by comparison um it feels like a much older story It, it feels like a much simpler story almost to a degree that it almost feels like a spidey super story in a lot of aspects to me despite all that and this is probably a lot of nostalgia talking i love this story i really do i've always loved this one since i was a kid and i actually bought this off the stands i'm not sure why i bought this off the stands because looking at the cover of this the only person i knew was spider-man and spider-man looks cool but he doesn't look particularly dynamic on this cover so I don't know exactly what made me pick it up and buy it, but I'm really glad that I that I did because I've always really dug this one a lot. I, I love the mix of characters. 
I love the the little team that they make in this. I, I love the interactions of the characters. You get some great little cameo guest star moments because Misty Knight and Colleen Wing do appear as well as Deb Whitman. Um, Aunt May's in it very briefly. You got J. Jonah Jameson. Um, and I think maybe even some other characters I'm forgetting. And you actually got just a very brief description uh, for each of the heroes as they were introduced throughout the story. So, for example, when you get to page 16 and you're seeing Power Man and Iron Fist, it just tells you very briefly, an ex-con with uh, superhuman strength and steel-hard skin, his friend and partner trained in a distant land to be a living weapon. Together they are Power Man and Iron Fist. I had no idea who the hell these people were. This was my first introduction, so this was a really nice way to meet them because that little, just that little paragraph told you everything you really needed to know to set them up, and then as the story progresses, it shows you a little more of what they can do. The very first page with them... Luke Cage uh, makes himself into essentially a human wall to save some civilians from being gunned down and Iron Fist goes into action and uh, does some really cool karate shit so you know in, in, a, in a span of about a page and a half you get everything you need to know about who these guys are what their power set is and, and the things that they can do and it really intrigued me for these characters and uh, for that reason I, I've always really liked this uh, and even Moon Knight, you know, he uh, he doesn't do a whole lot in the story, but the even the fact that the art is very simplistic, they're still able to capture that that kind of innate coolness that Moon Knight has. I've always Moon Knight's a really weird character for me because I'm really drawn to him, despite the fact that I don't think I've ever really read a great Moon Knight story. It's just it's all about the look with him. He's got a very, like, Boba Fett vibe to him, you know? He just looks cool, even if he's never really done anything all that cool to earn it. You know what I mean? I just, I, I like the look of the guy. Um, and, and that's really about it with this. I, I do dig this one. Uh, I don't know, now with, you know, with, with years of comics under my belt and, and a lot of hindsight and everything... I don't know if this is necessarily the best interpretation of these characters. Um, there are instances now that it's kind of odd that they almost feel a little against character or a little against type in certain instances, especially Daredevil just seems... He really seems like a throwback to an early, er, and like an earlier version of, of Daredevil in this story. And again, that might be due to the art. So it's just so odd to me that that this daredevil in this story is actually Frank Miller's daredevil. Cause he sure as hell just doesn't feel like it to me. And it's, it's so odd. So I don't know, but at the end of the day, um, and again, like I say, it might be a lot of nostalgia talking. I, I really dig this book. I think it's just fun. If nothing else, you know, it, it, it may not match with the darker, more serious, moodier tone that was going on with uh, with Daredevil in particular, but maybe you know it was starting to happen across the Marvel universe at this time. But it, it definitely fits with you know a, a lighter, more fun tone that comics had leading up to that darkening era, if you know what I mean. And for that reason, I really like it, and I give a, a, a big wide pass. What do you guys think of this one? Uh, yeah, I, I always liked this issue, but it, uh, I think you kind of hit on it. And, you know, usually I kind of like Herb Trimpey. 
but this, the artwork seems overly simple in this. Mm-hmm. And when you when you said about it being like a Spidey Super Stories, that's what it feels like in the artwork to me. And I think that's what makes it feel that way. I think if Miller had drawn this himself, it would have been a much darker story. And I think it would have been better. Yeah. But unfortunately, with the way it's drawn, I think it becomes forgettable. Yeah. Yeah. I got um, page... All right, page 36. I mean, no, excuse me, page 26. That's a nice shot of Luke Cage smashing through the wall. Yeah. Then you go to page 32, and it looks like it's the Spider-Man Macy's Day Prayer <laughs> balloon following Luke Cage and Iron Fist. Doesn't it? Look yeah. at the size of his head. He's got a huge it's, head. It's supposed, it's supposed to be a perspective shot. I know the shot, shot that they're going for. No, it doesn't work. No, I no. agree with you does not work yeah and there's another perspective shot we will call them at the bottom of page 37 come on how fat is the kingpin look at that uh, yeah yeah <laughs> oh, I, I do not care at all for the kingpin's depiction in this i really don't yeah but that was really bad i mean you've got a shot like from your it's like you were sitting in his crotch looking up at his head <laughs> It's like he's leaning way back to cut one or something. It's just, <laughs> it just doesn't look right at all. But there, there's I don't know what page it is, but there's a page earlier in this. I think it's the the pages that introduce the kingpin into the story. Let me see if I can find it. But he just looks. Oh God, where the hell where is he's, it? Where he's twirling his cigar and he's like gritting his teeth together. No, there's there's another. Or it's it's the shot. Yeah, it's the shot where uh, he's showing that he's not susceptible to the to the purple man's power. Oh, yeah. You got the person where he puts the thing to his head. That reminds me. What was the name of the of the principal in Archie? So, uh, Mr. Dithers. Was it Weatherby? I thought it was Weatherby. Oh, yeah. You know what? I think you're right. Who's Mr. Dithers? Oh, Mr. Dithers was blonde. Uh, Dagwood Bumstead. Yeah, that's course. right. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't he look like? I don't know. It just it looks very Archie-ish to me in that first panel, and then that second panel. I can't quite place it, but he looks like he looks like an actor, and I'm. He not... looks like the fat forest ranger in the Disney cartoons with the bears. <laughs> <laughs> then you scoop it up. Then you pick it up. Bump, Do the bump. Humphrey hop. Yeah. <laughs> Do the Humphrey hop. Bump bump. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. Oh my god. And then the fourth one, he's, you know, what is that? It's like it's like bald Ed, Ed Asner or something. He's just he's all smiley and oh, it's just yeah, it's not right. It's not right. Well, it, and I hate to keep ripping up your 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 book, Scott. But at one point, the Purple Man says that he wants to that he was trying to maintain a, a you know like on the down low. Really driving a purple. Rolls Royce with a purple <laughs> outfit. You're trying to be low key. Well, I don't think he says some. He's trying to be. No, low he does. Key, I said. no. He says he was. I'll I'll just keep talking. I'll 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 find it. Because I know. Because he said something. I was like, really? I said, he, uh, you know, I was thinking was, Frank Miller wrote this, and he, and he and he was like that big of a, you know, because it was like after he got out and he was trying to ma- ma- maintain a, you know. 
He says, uh, I thought, who needs the grief? Why let, uh, why let myself in for one pitch battle after another? I bruise it uh, quite easily when I can have anything I want just by asking for it. So I retired from crime to live the life of a gentleman of leisure. That, is that the part you're talking about? I thought that? there was something else, but maybe that's it. I don't know. He, he may have said something I'm in a different part, but yeah, he was talking about how uh, how basically he survived. Because this was back in the day where they... I, and I, I used to really appreciate it. I don't mean to make light of it. I, I was going to make fun of it, but they used to do this all the time. So if a villain met his end in his last appearance, they would go out of their way to explain why he's not dead, why he's back, essentially. And I was going to poke fun at that, but actually, I, I like that. I, I like that much better than not getting any explanation. They're just back again, you know? Um, but he's basically explaining why, at the end of his last appearance, uh, which was an issue of Daredevil, he survived. And it basically... Um, he messed with people's minds so that they would they would remember that he had died but he had he didn't actually die he just decided uh, you know I'm, I'm getting too old for this shit and and decided to just you know and that to me was actually one of the more logical parts of the story because here's a villain who finally smarted up and realized why am i a super villain when i'm smart enough to do it a smarter way and with this guy i mean he w why would he ever have to go to a life of crime to begin with? If if the world obeys every word that he utters, why would he ever need to be a, a criminal at all? He can have anything he wants. And he got smart and he realized that. And I actually thought that was kind of clever. I thought that was pretty smart. Or not. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like the way he manipulates things in this book but you know I, I like the way they, they managed to use all the heroes and everybody and the way they played with Kilgrave's Kilgrave, powers and everything I thought the issue was well well plotted and, and put together like I said my, my biggest thing is I just kind of wish it had a little bit of a darker feel about it just because it, it yeah. is a dark story yeah it is mm. I do like and, and I kind of brushed past it in my synopsis because I was doing synopsis on the fly if you couldn't tell but I do like the moment where we, we get a, a really nice insight into the Purple Man in the part where he's just strolling through Central Park. He comes across this couple and he just says, you there, stop. I want some company. And they both say, well, the guy says, sure. And the woman says, okay. And he basically says to the guy, I'm not talking to you. Go jump in the lake. <laughs> so the guy wanders off. And he takes the girl, and they go on a carriage ride. And he tries to put the moves on her. And when he doesn't like the way she kisses, he just boots her out. And then, you know, it showed the very next panel. He says, uh, it's simply no fun anymore. Total power over all that live is a beastly bore. And I like that because it's a nice foreshadowing of the, the purple man that we will eventually get in Jessica Jones, you know, specifically yeah. in the Alias series, because that's the whole hook with that, was that he was an evil bastard who would just use people any way he wanted to as as just disposable things, specifically her. And I really like that, because you get, you know, this is a more simpler time. It's a simpler time in comics. It's, it's a more innocent time in comics where they couldn't quite go that dark, 
but eventually they would follow this up and they would take it to its ultimate conclusion where you know you know really there's not any nice way to say it he's he's a monster he's a rapist and uh yeah it's it's pretty sick and you're getting just a glimpse of that here you know just a step in that direction I mean, it could maybe even be argued that uh, you know that that Frank Miller had a hand in in setting that character on the path that we would eventually see him take, and that's kind of well, cool. That's kind of interesting. Well, actually, Scott, I think I loaned you that Emperor Doom graphic novel. I don't remember if you actually uh-huh. read it. That's where Doom basically captures Kilgrave and puts him in like a giant amplification right, crystal right, and yeah. takes over and takes over the world. But the only person that was in effect was Wonder Man because he was in like a sensory uh, uh, deprivation tank for over a month and when he comes out everything's changed and he's like the only one who fights against Doom and um, um, Doom actually gets relishes the challenge because with the Purple Man pulling the strings keeping everybody docile Doom has no challenges anymore Right. and he, he, he grows weary of the whole thing and actually just you know basically allows Wonder Man to win so that I guess Doom can have fun once again. <laughs> well, but, uh, was, there was do we have anything else, else before Grace? Something else. Oh, okay. There. Here's another reason why um, the why the hitman is Santa Claus. He's climbing the side of a building with suction cuffs. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> Maybe if it was solid glass, but you're going up stone, buddy. Well, I gotta be honest. That doesn't work. No. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if this character is only in this issue, or if this was somebody regularly appearing somewhere else or something. But I really kept expecting through this whole story that eventually be somebody would, else. Like he would pull yeah, a mask off. That's what pull, I thought yeah, was gonna happen. He would pull the glasses and the fake beard off, and he would. Turn I, I out thought maybe like he was gonna be the underworld or something. Well, I, I thought he was gonna be Matt Murdock or something because of the yeah. glasses. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. I, I really did. I thought he would turn out to be, especially with that stupid name. Yeah, I wasn't kidding about that. I mean, really, the the name they give for him is Heinrich von Schnickelschnapp, and I'm like, come on, seriously? And apparently, yeah. So I didn't look him up, but I'm I'm wondering, is he just a one shot deal for this issue, or is he actually somebody? You know, had he had he been around prior, and did he come back again? I'm I'm now I'm curious because I couldn't quite figure him out in this story, other than. Other than bringing the Purple Man before the Kingpin, what's you know, and then of course being the the reason that uh, that Moon Knight, you know, the 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 place that Moon Knight acquires the earplugs from, what what purpose did he really serve in this story? You know, so he yeah he's. Re- <laughs> He's rather ridiculous and over the top for for as little as he's used in the story. I just did a search for Heinrich von Schnickelschnapp. <laughs> I haven't come up with any. Well, I came up with the images, but uh, I'm not sure I spelled it right. Well, when we move on to your book, I'll uh, I'll do some digging around and see what I might be able to turn out. But I just I, I thought that was one of the weirder aspects of this book, but. 
Anyway, for sake of time, we're probably looking at uh, needing to move on here. So let me go ahead and do my grades on this. Um, so cover, despite a couple of issues with, uh, with anatomy, and specifically when Luke Cage just looks a little bit weird, um, despite that, I like this cover. Um, it's uh, Again, it's Frank Miller and uh, Joe Rubenstein. I really like the cover. I think it's actually really cool. Um, now, the Purple Ru- Man Ru- is... Ru- Rubenstein's always a good... Hmm. Um, like, he's a good... Oh, I'm so tired, I can't speak. Combination. Like, yeah, good I like him. For... Yeah, because oh, yeah. he... Well, actually, with lots of people, because didn't he ink burn on the Captain America stuff? I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Purple Man is blue is the only real quibble I've got with it, so that that's a little bit odd. Um, but stylistically, I really like it. I, I think it's a really cool cover, so uh, I think I'm going to go... Uh, I think I will go an A- minus on the cover. I really like this cover. I think it's really cool. I, I like the figure work that's on it, and the way the different uh, characters, you know, the different heroes are worked into it. It's pretty neat. And it's, uh, it's eye-catching. Uh, interior art, not so much. It's very inconsistent. It's very juvenile. The perspective shots mostly don't work. Um, it has a far too simplistic style for what the the story needs. So again, it's it's very kiddie comics for a story that's really not too kiddie, honestly. Mm-hmm. And some of the pacing of the story uh, suffers because of the simplicity of the art. Uh, like I pointed out before, page five, that uh, that third panel where Daredevil enters the story is just flat damn ridiculous. It's it's silly. And I don't that's, think it was... That's like a Batman it, thing. It is. It, it really is. But it, it doesn't, even in that aspect, it doesn't really work unless you're going for like, you know, 60s TV Batman, then yeah, maybe it works as parody, but here it's it, you know i don't know what they were going for thinking that was cool but it doesn't look it looks silly so yeah it doesn't really work and there's a number of artistic things throughout the book that just don't work sadly um there's there's precious few that honestly do work i i do like most of the sequences with power man and iron fist and i really like the sequence where he punches through the wall but it's not enough to save it artistically unfortunately um, I'm trying to remember what I thought of this as a kid, and quite honestly, I think I liked it when I was a kid. It's just now, with hindsight, that I, I see more errors in it or more you know, stuff I don't like in it than I do, honestly, things that I do like. But So it, it worked you know, on, that, on that child level when I was much younger, but now, nah, not so much. Um, so art-wise, I think I'm going to go a... Uh, I hate to say it, I think I'm going to go a C- on it because I think it's below average comic book art, especially for this period that we're in. We're so, you know, there was so much good stuff coming out at this time. Um, this just looks lazy and childish in comparison to what was, you know, what else was on the stands around this same time. Uh, story wise, I like the story. Um, again, I. I, I'm a little shocked that this is Frank Miller just in the aspect of, again, I, I think it is a, a somewhat juvenile story, but with the right art to kind of gritty it up a little bit, 
I think maybe it wouldn't have seemed as juvenile as as you know as it is, and also trying to you know take my mind back to 1981. Maybe this only seems juvenile now in hindsight because even a lot of the stories that were so praised as being uh, you know more adult and more serious and all that, even now a lot of those ser- stories, even stuff like Daredevil and Wolverine that were so cutting edge back then. Now, all these years later, don't seem as edgy to me anymore. And sometimes even they seem a little bit silly and childish. So, again, you know, placing this alongside that, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, But I think, you know, story-wise, I think I'm going to give it a solid B because um, it really did. It introduced me to these characters. I think it was a really good introduction to these characters and, uh, and it did a good job of showcasing everybody. I don't think anybody got short shrift in this story. And, uh, and it, it was a nice team up with, uh, you know, rather a lot of characters. So I, I liked it on that aspect, the actual story itself. Eh, you know, it, it's a little simple, but, it does what it needed to do, and uh, and I enjoy it. So, uh, as an overall aggregate ga- uh, grade on this one, I would say um, I, think I would say a B minus because I think it's better than your average team up fare. I, I think it does it, it does this sort of thing a little bit better than some of the other team up things that were coming out around the same time. So, that's my grade B minus. Okay. Um, the cover, I feel like the individual parts are greater than the sum of them. Uh, I like the way each figure is drawn, but when I look at it as a whole, I'm just not thrilled with it. And Bill, you'll be happy to know I'm going to be consistent in that I don't like the stark white background here. <laughs> um, I feel like just this having to put all the names on it kind of takes away from it a little bit it just blocks up the page and it makes it look too simple i don't know simplistic um like i said the individual faces and bodies and figures i like all of them but when you put them together it just doesn't add up to as much as it should uh i'm gonna say a b minus on the cover it really just didn't do everything i wanted it to although i like i said i like the individual figures the interior art, uh, I hate to give Herb Trimpy such a bad grade, but I, I just think the interior art is weak. It's not that I look at any picture and hate it. It's just, it looks like a Spidey Super Stories. It's just so overly simplistic that it's kind of ridiculous. And I don't like the punching through the wall sequence that you said you do like, Scott. Uh, the picture leading up to it where the proportion on Nick uh, on, on Luke Cage's fist just looks crazy and then when he actually bursts through it, it it doesn't feel kinetic to me it just feels like a two-dimensional image uh, the poster images in general in this book you know put the splash page images I just think don't really do much for me uh, the artwork overall is poor but it's not you know it's not totally unredeemed so I don't want to give it an F but I'm gonna say a D plus on the interior art it tells the story, but it doesn't do a hell of a lot more than that. I think the story is kind of cool. Uh, I think it would do better with a darker artwork, 
to set the tone and I think some of the dialogue would have been darker too to compensate if, if the pictures were darker I think the whole story would have been somewhat more adult and maybe that's the problem maybe they were trying to make it a little bit more kid friendly uh, so I'm going to say the, the story had the potential to be really good but it was only kind of good I'm going to give it a uh, B- minus on the story and overall I'm going to give the book a B- minus. Cool. No. Um, yeah, the cover... See, the white backgrounds don't bother me as much, but in this case, you know, with all the... Uh, yeah, it's like... I don't know, what, what could they have... I'm trying to think what they could have done to have... Maybe, what could they have put in the background to make this look different? And I don't really well, I have any ideas. The, I think if maybe if they had staggered the heroes a little bit better, because you really are bunched up on one side. Well, one way or another, you only have five heroes. You're going to have, unless they have, like, Moon Knight hanging on the top of the Purple Man's head, you're, 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 they kind of have to stack them on the other side because they have the, um, the box up in the corner, too. Right. So, um, I, I like Joe Rubenstein with Miller, so uh, I, I think the cover I'm I'm going to give it uh, a B minus. Uh, interior man, I just cannot get past Macy Day, Macy's Day Spider Man, and <laughs> and some of the just I I guess the term we've used or like you guys have used is pedestrian. It's just kind of yeah. you know. It tells the story, but it's not really anything super exciting or just, you know. Uh, so the arts, uh, like a C minus, D plus. The story, yeah, the story's not bad. Um, although suddenly, um, when they knock over the water tank, I guess suddenly Danny Rand has become Karnak. From the Inhumans, because he has to determine the point of greatest stress in the water tower structure. Didn't really right. know he had that power. Should he just summon his chi and just smash it and be done with it? <laughs> I mean, he's the Iron Fist. He's not the contemplative fist. Just freaking smash it, Danny. Does he uh, ever summon his Cheetos, I wonder? Is is that like athlete's foot Cheetos? <laughs> he's got the iron toe. Um, yeah, I, so, she <laughs> she whiz, that's a different, that's a, that's an STD, uh, <laughs> have to talk to Colleen, um, so, I guess, there were three Iron Fists, would it be Chichichia? It's late, you're making me tired. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I'll give the story a I'll give the story a B minus. So I guess uh, a C plus book overall. Oh. Do we have time okay. for a third no. book? No. <laughs> okay. Okay, and it's uh, you're the guy who has to get up earliest. That was, that was so. definitive. Yeah, I, I yeah no because I'll have to ramble the synopsis. I can't do it. 
right. So what we'll do is next time we get together, Bill will do his book. Yeah. So we'll 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 kind of continue to defender score into the next uh, next episode, but it won't be a defender score because Scott and I probably won't have books, but we may. We won't have defenders books, but we may. So uh, thank you everybody for listening, and we'll see you in a week. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to two true freaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the two true site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. All right, hold on. I gotta chase the cat out of here. Get out of here. Go. Get out of here. I'm not feeding you. Go. 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 Here. How about a boot to the ass? Now, go. Go, go, go. Go, go, go. Goddamn cat.